This fall, we discussed God's plan for dating, how to build meaningful friendships, and how to connect with and honor your family in adulthood. We carved pumpkins, had fellowship over a turkey dinner, and showed off our ugly sweaters. Join us this winter and spring as we begin our new series, Faith in the Ordinary, how following Jesus goes far beyond Sunday. We'll discover how to grow in our walk with Christ as we pursue our goals, honor Him with how we use our money, and how to build God's kingdom while on mission in our workplace. We'll also have some amazing community events and retreats lined up you won't want to miss. Join a community of young adults who are seeking to grow in their relationship with Jesus. 312. Making God known in Chicago to the ends of the earth. Let's get started. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming out tonight uh, to 312 Night. For those of you I haven't met, my name's Trevor. I serve as one of the pastors here at Park. And tonight, uh, we are opening up a brand new series for the next few months for 312. It's called Faith in the Ordinary. Uh, how, sorry, I'm working uh, slides. I'm working dual coordination tonight. So in the same way, this is new for me. I'm going to try and do slides and uh, the talk at the same time. So Hopefully the coordination develops as we go. <laughs> Faith in the ordinary, how following Jesus goes far beyond Sunday, which is all about how the gospel and how a relationship with Jesus changes the way that we approach so many of the ordinary, but at the same time, very significant aspects of life. How the gospel affects not just what we do on Sunday mornings, but every piece of our lives. And in a way that is absolutely good news for us. And so we're kicking things off tonight, uh, specifically with the subject of goals, uh, and then over the next few months we'll be touching on work as well as money. So it should be good. Looking forward to that. Now, already at the introduction of that subject, I know some of you are probably feeling jazzed and ready, which I know is not a word I use lightly. I don't know how, how much y'all use that, but uh, because you love goals. And, and so you already have your list of goals set for the year had it set in January, and uh, you're working your schedule, you've got your systems implemented, you're tracking your progress, and are well on your way to accomplishing every single one of them, because you love goals in every single way. But at the same time, there are likely some of you, maybe just a couple who are thinking, man, I absolutely hate goals. I don't set them, I don't keep them, I don't care to learn more about them. I just came out tonight for the chili, because when it comes to goals, I really just don't like them. And what I'm glad to say in response to both of those perspectives is that tonight you will each have equal representation up here on the stage. Because while I love goals, uh, my better half absolutely does not. Now, we were shooting to actually have a little bit of a co-teach. My wife and I were each going to have a piece of this, but so we just the way things kind of worked out, uh, I'm going to present my piece and then I'll present on her behalf as well. Uh, so basically, you'll get to hear on the subject of goals, not just from someone who loves them, which is really the only way I've ever heard goals talked about, but you'll also get to hear from someone uh, who does not like them. So to that end, uh, we'll work through that together. We've got these three sections for our time together tonight. Uh, this is our table of contents. We have framing the subject, glory goals, and stewardship goals. Framing the subject, Glory goals and stewardship goals. That's what we're working through together. So jumping in with that first one, framing the subject. All right, this uh, first off, 
I think what I want to mention is that for all of our craze about goals uh, in our culture, with New Year's resolutions, they're actually anything but unique to our own day and age. We actually see them all throughout history, and even within the Bible itself, which spans uh, about a 1,500-year range, we see goals all throughout it. Just a couple of examples being, uh, one being Paul, who's one of the most significant leaders in the early church in the New Testament, wrote much of the New Testament. He expresses in one of the books, Romans, that he wrote, that he himself was living according to goals. And he lists several goals right in the passage that he himself was currently in the midst of pursuing. This is what he says. Uh, He's saying to the church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And so his short-term goal, very clearly, is to, be, uh, to travel to Jerusalem to deliver this gift of money that he collected from other churches along the way to help uh, the followers of Jesus who are in the city of Jerusalem. His midterm goal is to travel to Rome and develop a further relationship with this church, with these believers that he's writing to. And then his long-term goal is to travel to uh, beyond Rome into Spain and to begin planting churches there, introducing the gospel to that region where it had not yet been introduced. And so Paul is operating according to goals. And so we see this in the New Testament, and we see it in stories that come several centuries earlier as well. In stories like Nehemiah, where he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem so the city can have defenses again. Uh, We see it in the story of Esther, where she uses the position and the relationships that God has given her in order to save her people, the people of Israel, from this policy of extermination in the story. So goals are clearly littered all throughout the Bible, But that fact alone doesn't exactly justify them because there are many things that are in the Bible all throughout that that aren't necessarily good or things that we should model ourselves after. So I think the question still remains, how does following Jesus lead us to approach the subject of goals? How does following Jesus change the way that we interact with goals? How should it lead us to handle them? And the basic answer would be that as soon as you receive Jesus... As soon as you begin to call him Lord as the ultimate authority in your life, part of what you receive from him, part of what we receive, is a new goal, right? An ultimate and overarching goal that shapes everything else within our lives, which is something we see in several different places. Just to tease out a couple, one of them being uh, from Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, where he says this to them. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So whether we are at home or away. At home means to be in the body, to be still alive. Away means to be dead. We make it our aim, our goal to please him, referring to Jesus, right? Our goal uh, in every circumstances, in in all circumstances, is to please Jesus, is to serve him with our lives, no matter where we're at. It's to serve and glorify God. And he even goes on to say that we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ where we'll be rewarded according to how well we've done this. Because this is the goal that's been given to us by the one who is our authority. So we see it there uh, in the writings of Paul, New Testament. We also see it even in Jesus' uh, own words 
in a story that he told called the parable of the talents. And the story goes like this. It's, it's located in Matthew chapter 19, uh, but the story, or actually Matthew chapter 25, um, but it goes like this. There's a wealthy man who goes away for several years, but before he leaves, he gives money to three of his servants, and he leaves them with a, a significant amount of money, uh, giving five talents to one, two talents to another, and a single talent to the third and final servant. And a talent is the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages for a regular laborer. So it's a significant amount of money. And in the story, during the years while the master is away, the first two servants make use of their talents. They invest them and they're able to make a profit from them. Whereas the final servant instead buries the talent, opting to do nothing with it and waiting until the man returns. And when he does, the, the, the guy is outraged with the final servant who did nothing with what he was given, did nothing with what had been entrusted to him. But the first two who did make use of what they'd been given, who were good and faithful stewards, to them he said this, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, right? Or in the perspective and what Jesus is trying to communicate, enter into my joy. So each of us with our lives, with our skills and our abilities, with our relationships, with the opportunities we've been given, with the support structures we've been surrounded with, with the doors that God has opened to us, all of these things have been given to us in order to steward well, to manage well. The hope being that when our days finally come to an end and we stand before uh, our Lord, we'll be able to hear that same affirmation from him that we use the lives we were given well. Not perfectly, but well, according to the goal that he gave us. And that is what frames the subject for us. Regardless of our tendencies, of our affections for goals, of our dislike for goals, regardless of how we feel towards them, this is what frames the way that we approach them. That if we call Jesus Lord, then we all share the same goal, to please him with the way we've lived our lives. And so now that we've laid the foundation, I want to move into uh, teasing this out a bit more in some of the some more practical terms for the two types of people who, who are in this room when it comes to goals, those who love them and those who do not. So first we'll hit on those who do glory goals, because that'll be more fun for me. <laughs> so glory goals, setting a, a goal is an inherently ambitious act. Right? There's ambition involved in the act of setting and pursuing a goal. But the thing is, as followers of Jesus, we often have this level of uncertainty around ambition because the Bible warns us in many places about the dangers that surround it. And so for those of us who are more goal-oriented, I think this is something that we often wrestle with. When is ambition okay? When is it good to set an ambitious goal? When is that appropriate? When is it inappropriate? In what context and in what setting is that good? And I would say that the answer is a matter of motivation. And the error that we often fall into is when our motivation in setting and attaining a goal is to craft an identity for ourselves. Right? The error is when our motivation in setting a goal is to craft an identity for ourselves. And so this is, this is an equation uh, that I think gets at how identity functions for a lot of us. That uh, for many of us, identity equals my performance plus the opinion of others. Identity equals my performance plus the opinion 
of others, right? My identity, what makes me significant is me being good at something or accomplishing something worthwhile plus the opinion of others who verify and validate that what I have done and therefore who I am matters. And we do this with many different things, from finances to uh, all kinds of things, to appearance, to uh, grades in school, to promotions. We, we do all kinds of things to, to basically perform in order to earn the approval of others so we can craft an identity for ourselves that will make us feel significant. And goals are a natural tool to that end because they allow us to define what the performance will be that will enable us to gain the approval that we long for. Right? And just for example, growing up, my older brother was the star athlete of our hometown of Garden, Michigan. Uh, I'm sure you probably all have heard of it. The, the basketball league there's big news. Dominic knows. So yeah, it's, it's, a, big, it's a big thing. It's kind of like the, the Big Ten of the UP. So surprise Surprise y'all. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> he was the star athlete of, of the hometown, right? And uh, school sports being basically the only form of entertainment that we had, it was a big deal. And so he received a lot of praise and attention because of this. I remember hearing his name called out on the radio, uh, people kind of celebrating him at games and in the gymnasium. It was a big deal. And I saw all of that as just a little kid growing up. And so what that taught me, what it gave me the impression was that if I wanted to be somebody, if I wanted to have that same kind of attention, then I needed to be good at sports too. And so I devoted myself to basketball, training all around the year, setting off-season goals and performance goals during the season, records I wanted to break, percentages I wanted to hit, all kinds of goals that were crafted to define the performance I needed in order to gain the approval I was longing for. Which if you have any experience with something like that, whether you succeeded or whether you failed, in meeting those goals, you know just how fragile an identity that can be. Right? How fragile an identity is that is based on our performance, right, and the flaky opinion of others. Right? So fragile that it never feels secure, it never feels safe, and it always leaves us needing to perform more. But thankfully, after high school, I became a follower of Jesus at about 19 years old, and I left all of that behind entirely. I've never struggled with it since, not even one time, which has been really, really good. <laughs> no, the truth is I still struggle with this because it's just as easy now uh, to think that my performance in ministry or even the success of the ministries I'm involved with, that that says something about who I am and, and why I matter. That if people like my teaching or if they hate it, or if they're even indifferent to it, that all of that says something about my worth as a person. And what I've found is that the more I've leaned into that, the more I've let that current take me into performing for my worth, for my identity, into looking for the approval of others, right, to have my own security, the less secure I feel, right? And the higher the demands to perform and the more fragile of an identity I find myself leaning into. And my guess is, that I'm not alone in that. And so for those of us who love goals, this is a significant temptation to use goals in order to craft our own identities. And that being the case, I think the question is, well, is there a way to use goals that doesn't lead to this? Is there a way to use goals that's more honoring to God, that isn't just about uh, working for our own significance? And I would say, yes, absolutely. But again, it all comes down to motivation. Because the temptation to craft our identities stems 
from the feeling that for some reason we lack one. Right? That we're, we're caught up in this desire because for some reason we feel that we lack the identity that would give us the grounding we need. Right? But what the gospel tells us is that our identity isn't something we have to strive or compete for, but our identity follows another equation altogether. Right? And this is gospel identity. And it works like this, that, that our identity is actually found not in our own performance or in the opinion of others, but it's found in Jesus's performance on our behalf in the gospel and in the opinion of God that follows from that. And so just to kind of work this out, right? Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't, and then he gave his life sacrificially on the cross in our place and for our sins. And so when we stand before God, the opinion of God of us is not that we're no longer guilty, right? He's paid the debt for our sins. And so we don't stand before God as guilty, but we also don't even stand before him as innocent because also the righteousness of his perfect life is transferred to us. And so the result of his performance is that we stand before God, not as guilty, not even as innocent, but as righteous for all of eternity. And so God's opinion of us is that he loves us and he delights in us in the very same way that he delights in his son, Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that we can do to take away from that. There's nothing we can do to contribute to it either. It's something that we just receive. And our only contribution is faith. And as we start from there, there isn't a need to use goals anymore in order to craft our own identities because we already have one. But we can then use goals as an act of worship to manage well for God what he has given us in this life. And so if your goal is to run the Chicago Marathon this year, depending on how that chili's sitting with you, you do so not to accomplish something for which people will give you attention, but you do so to steward well the time and the body that God has given you. I'm just kidding. The chili was great. It was healthy, protein-based. <laughs> or another example, if you set a goal to take on a new project at work. You do so not to earn the approval of your coworkers and superiors, but you do so to glorify God in the way you handle the opportunities he's given you in this job. And so your goals become marked more by stewarding what God has given you and for the sake of his glory and worshiping him far more than they ever are about crafting an identity for ourselves. Because in that framework, in this equation of the gospel, we don't need to hit our goals to be significant. We already are significant. And so we work hard just purely to love and serve God more. And that is how we lean well into glory goals. All right, with that, if she were here, I would invite up my better half, Megan, my wife of nine years, going on 10 this year, 10 year anniversary, looking forward to that, and uh, take us into our third and final point. But she's not here, so <laughs> I'm gonna read this portion for us. And, uh, and uh, hear what she has to say from someone who does not let goals. So let me read this. Uh, hello, everyone. Glad to be here with you all tonight. As Trevor said, my name is Megan, and I am, in fact, his wife. If you think this is weird for you, imagine how it feels for me. <laughs> it is true. I do strongly dislike goals. And honestly, I don't think I have met a person at Park who is not goal-oriented. Uh, but maybe there are a few like-minded people who will benefit from what I have to say. For the rest, here are some nuggets of wisdom to help you better understand those in your life who are not goal-oriented. 
Uh, these are the top 10 resolutions or goals that people make for the new year. To exercise more, to lose weight, get organized, learn a new skill or hobby, live life to the fullest, save more money, spend less money, quit smoking, spend more time with family and friends, travel more, read more. Some pretty good, some pretty good goals. Pretty good goals. And uh, now, I, I used to try and make resolutions and of course had a few that are on this list. One thing that was common though for every single year was that I always failed. Every single year I failed, and I failed fast. So naturally, I decided goals and resolutions just aren't for me, and I stopped making them all together. And I haven't made a goal in about a decade. So when uh, my husband asked me to speak up my perspective of goals, I had no idea what I would come to find. And I learned some things about myself in this process and quickly realized some changes needed to be made. Even if I don't necessarily love goals, Uh, Because as a follower of Christ, I need to learn to like them a little more and steward my life around the goal that God has given me. Because as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, I am not my own. I I was bought with a price. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So we don't belong to ourselves, meaning it's not a matter of my preferences It's a matter of his. My life doesn't belong to me, but it's been given to me to steward well, to use well. And like it or not, goals are a helpful tool to accomplish that. The question is, how do I make them work for me? And these are two two thoughts. First, a name change. I found that instead of looking at being goal-oriented, I could be rhythm and routine-oriented, which, side note, feels like just a sneaky way around it, but... Uh, But she says, I thrive when my life has a healthy rhythm and routine to it. The thing that needed to be tweaked in my day-to-day was adding different rhythms that were glorifying to God. I had become so complacent with the way my days were going that I hadn't noticed how me-centered they were. Sure, I needed to put my phone down more, but what could I do to make my life more Christ-centered? What could I do to make my everyday life please God? So first off, instead of thinking about goals... Think about rhythms and routines, if the word goal is one that is distasteful to you. Uh, Number two, operating from a place of love. Operating from a place of love. This is 1 John 4, 7 and 8, where uh, John, writing to the church, says this. Beloved, let us love one another. He gives them that goal. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. So he instructs them to love one another and to do so out of the love that they have already received from God in the gospel. The thing is, it is so easy to operate out of guilt, fear, and shame. But God wants us to operate out of a place of love. 1 John 4.18, right after this passage, even goes on to say that perfect love casts out fear. And so when I take time to really sit and think about God's love for me... I no longer operate out of that place of guilt and fear. I know that God cares for and sees me in everything that I do. He's there to pick me up and help me when I haven't gotten it right. He gently nudges me in the direction that I should be going. He shows me where I got it wrong. Also, he embraces me when I get it right and encourages me to take the next steps that will bring me closer to him. I know I am fully loved, so I don't have to sit in failure for very long to know I can get back up and try again. And there's not someone condemning me but encouraging me. And so to that end, one rhythm I'm trying to implement is more focused prayer time. I 
can set aside time to read my Bible, but my prayer life is, is often more like quick prayers being said and then moving along with the rest of my day. And I know there are going to be times when prayer falls to the back seat because life got busy or I got lazy. But instead of feeling bad about not being more diligent or focused in my prayer time, I can apologize and continue to pray and work on doing better the next time. Knowing that what God wants is my time and my affection and my love, not my guilt, shame, and fear. And also, God's love should spur me on to love others. So I think about all the ways I can love my family and friends better. How can I show the people around me a Christ-like love? And one rhythm I want to implement is caring for others. I want to set aside time to be intentional to check in on those in my life, to check in with my husband, my kids, and the close friends that I've been given, the relationships I've invested in. And I can so easily fill my day up with things about me that ultimately really are primarily about serving me. And then before I know it, I have no idea how the people around me are doing. So by setting aside specific time to send a text or to make a phone call or to have the conversation in person, that helps me to love those around me better. Because doesn't it feel so nice when someone you love asks you how you're doing, wanting to hear what you're going or what you're going to say and genuinely caring about the answer. When a friend follows up after you shared some things with them, nothing encourages me more than when someone listens to me and then takes the time to pray with me. That is what our church community is for, sending out the love that we have so graciously received first in the gospel. And so realizing that goals are a way for me to steward this gift of life that God has given me has made me appreciate them more. But it's also helped me to reshape what my goals can and should should look like, and that love is fundamentally at the root of all of them. So all that to say, in summary here, whether you love goals or whether you hate goals, it doesn't really matter. Because if we follow Jesus, if we call him Lord, we've all been given the same goal, that of serving and glorifying him. But we do so not to earn an identity or a worth for ourselves that we don't already have. And we do so not because we're driven by guilt and shame and fear to be better Christians or better people either. But we use goals to honor Jesus with our lives in response to his love for us. And so that we can love others better with the hope that one day we will stand before him and receive those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. All right, Jesus, we do thank you that uh, our identity, that our our worth and our significance is found in you. And we ask that um, you would help us to ground ourselves more and more in that, to... um, to preach the gospel to ourselves and to to sit and soak in your love on a regular basis. And out of that, uh, to set and to pursue goals that lead us into loving those around us better and to loving you better and ultimately to seeking your glory. And so would you help us to grow in this way as followers of you? Because we believe that, that you've given these goals to us for our good, that you've given this goal to us for our ultimate good. Uh, and for our joy. And so would you lead us to walk in it um, with greater and greater faithfulness throughout our lives. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.